This is an AMI podcast. It is more important for people with disabilities to be active and be involved in recreational sport just to make their life a bit easier. You know, somebody in a wheelchair that wants to transfer from their chair to the front seat of their car needs to be able to lift their body. And so if you don't take care of yourself, you don't stay on top of those things, your life is just going to be harder. And so I always just really think for people with disabilities to, to stay on top of that. You don't need to be a gold medalist. You don't need to be a Paralympian. You don't need to play for Team Ontario or Canada. You just got to get out and have fun and be active. I'm Joita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. After the Second World War, one of the lasting legacies for people with disabilities was the advocacy of recently injured war veterans. This is especially true for the strides made in promoting the availability of various parasports, such as wheelchair basketball or para hockey. Those veterans understood that sport could break down barriers and that the positive impact of parasport goes beyond the benefit to athletes themselves. For the disability community, parasport has occupied a unique place. It has helped to break down barriers for people with disabilities and challenge the status quo. When we think about athletes as our heroes, para-sport offers an intellectual challenge to question the idea of the athlete as someone who is inherently able-bodied. Today, we discuss para-sport as disability advocacy. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joetha Gupta. Over the last few weeks, we've been speaking to inductees to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. You've already heard from Josh Duke and Lauren MacDonald, but if you missed those conversations, you can always find our interviews on your favorite podcast platform. Joining me today is Greg Westlake. Greg Westlake is an outstanding athlete and one of the world's best para ice hockey players. Now retired, he represented Canada proudly over an impressive career spanning a decade and a half. Westlake won gold during his Paralympic debut in 2006 and added silver and bronze medals in subsequent games. He was captain of Canada's para ice hockey team for several years and a flag bearer for the opening ceremonies at Beijing 2022. Westlake is also a nine-time world championship team member with three world titles. Off the ice, He's a dedicated leader, role model, and volunteer, and my guest today. Hello, and welcome to the program. It's really great to have you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a uh, very nice introduction. I'm uh, pumped to be here. Yeah, congratulations on your induction to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. I'm really excited for you. I bet you're really excited for you. Tell me what it means to you. Well, it, it's a tremendous honor. I, I was, uh, you know, I was excited to share it with my parents and people that really helped me my whole life. Ultimately, too, I was just kind of laughing because when you're an athlete and you play sports your whole life, you, you never think about Hall of Fames and you don't even think about the end of your career. I spent, you know, almost 19 years just trying really hard to live in a moment and just stay present every day and try to get better every day and, you know, just get a little bit better than I was the day before. And then all of a sudden you retire and some of this stuff starts happening and, and you start understanding that, 
those years you put in meant a lot to other people. And, mm. you know, it, it, so it's just such a nice honor and it just makes you really feel like all those years of, you know, literally the blood, sweat and the tears were, you know, all worth it. Mm -hmm. I really liked what you said about sort of taking it one day at a time, but when you reflect on your career and indeed on the role of para-sport, how do you think athletes like yourself may have improved the lives of people with disabilities overall, even if they're not hockey players or athletes themselves? Well, it's a great question. And I think the big thing that Paralympic athletes and athletes with disabilities can do is just share the positive messaging of living a healthy, active lifestyle. And, you know, for me, I'm somebody that gets around on, on two artificial legs. And if I put on a lot of weight and I don't, I don't take care of my body, you know, I won't be able to walk, you know, as I get older and I won't be able to live the active life I want. I, you know, I won't be able to play golf when I'm in my sixties and, and all that stuff. And, you know, people with disabilities have a harder time in day-to-day -day life, you know, moving around and, and, and taking care of themselves. So I'm a big advocate for just health, healthy living and staying active and all that stuff. And so whether you're a Paralympic champion or you're just somebody who just wants to get out and, and play sports recreationally and you happen to be in a wheelchair, it is mm -hmm. more important for people with disabilities to be active and be involved in recreational sport just to make their life a bit easier. You know, somebody in a wheelchair that wants to transfer from their chair to the front seat of their car needs to be able to lift their body. And so if you don't take care of yourself, you don't stay on top of those things, your life is just going to be harder. And so I always just really think for people with disabilities to, to stay on top of that. You don't need to be a gold medalist. You don't need to be a Paralympian. You don't need to play for Team Ontario or Canada. You just got to get out and have fun and be active. Mm -hmm. Now, I couldn't help hear you say how you were an advocate for healthy living, and I don't disagree with you. But there is a school of thought where people will say, look, if you're an athlete, just play your sport. Because sports and politics and advocacy, those things just don't mix. What's your take when you hear something like that? Well, I don't know if I would agree with that. I, I think there's a mix for a lot of that stuff. I think you have to be, you know, especially where we're at right now these days, you have to be cognizant of other people and, and respectful of other people's feelings and thoughts toward all those things. But I can just tell you for myself, I, I get around on my two artificial legs a lot better when, uh, when I'm feeling good and when I'm staying active. So that's just mm -hmm. my personal story, but I would never push it on anyone else. I want to know though, because you've been involved with parasport in some form or the other for such a long time. You started skating when you were three years old, I believe. So <laughs> when you think about all the years that have gone by in between, how has the parasport movement in Canada evolved? Well, the level of athlete and the level of people being involved is just going up every year. Hmm. And for me, what was crazy is I actually really wanted nothing to do with, uh, you know, adaptive sports or Paralympic sports. I spent most of my life trying to avoid that. You know, hmm. the reason I started skating when I was three was because I wanted to, you know, play with my siblings. And then I got older and I wanted to play with the able-bodied kids at school. And, and so I spent a lot of my time trying to keep up and, and play with able-bodied people and do all those things. And it wasn't until I was about 15, 16 years old, I made the switch over and I went out, I got on a sled and it was called sledge hockey at that time. And I gave it a chance. And it was meeting these other athletes with disabilities that really opened my eyes to how amazing these people are. And I went out and, and I saw people who could shoot the puck so hard and it was a full contact sport. And I saw the level of shape these guys were in. And it just completely made me a believer in Paralympic sport. I remember coming home from that ice time thinking, these athletes are incredible. I, I want to do that. 
And so I just know the profound impact it had on my life. And then on top of that, it's the people you're meeting. You know, we have military veterans that, that lost legs, you know, serving our country. We have cancer survivors. We have all these incredible personalities. Mm -hmm. And it just made such an impact on me. It made me a believer that I kind of went from this guy that was, didn't want to play these sports, just wanted to hang out with my friends at school to really being sold on it. And then now I want to continue pushing that to the next generation of just come try it at least. Because once you come try it and get outside your comfort zone, you might find something that changes your life forever. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. No, I agree with you. And yet I think about when you sort of make those inroads into playing hockey or any kind of game. I was talking to a friend of mine and she has a young son. And I said, so are you going to get him signed up for hockey? And she said, no, no, you know what? It's just too expensive. So when you think about the barriers to playing a game uh, or, you know, um, just, you know, sport in general, but parasport in particular, what would you say to someone who who maybe is hesitant because of the cost or some of those financial barriers that they might perceive in the way? I would tell that person that they are 100% correct. And, and that is one thing that we have to advocate more for. We need more funding for adaptive equipment because at the end of the day, it is more expensive to be an athlete uh, than an able-bodied athlete. You know, my sled for, for para hockey costs $1,500, $2,000. A pair of skates would have cost $200 or $300. Uh, you know, racing wheelchairs are extremely expensive. They're more expensive than running shoes. And so when you start breaking down all the costs, it is expensive. It is hard to get into. And, and that's one of the biggest barriers to entry that we need to fix because we need people to come out and have a good first experience. You, you know, the, the numbers and the stats show that if kids don't come out and have a good first experience, they won't come back. They'll be soured mm -hmm. on it forever. And one of the best ways that we can help improve a first experience and get somebody to become a fan for life is to have the right equipment, is to make sure that they that their parents don't have to spend that much money just for a child to come out and try it once and not like it. And so the more we can get this equipment into organizations and, and kids can come try it for free uh, and then see if they like it, that's what we have to do. Because people who say that it's expensive again too, I, I agree with them, they're right. You know, when I was three years old, I tried dancing, then I switched over to art, then I did music, then I did some pottery. I mean, I flipped from thing, you know, from hobby to hobby. And I think about how you've been really determined in terms of playing hockey from the get go. What is it about the game that draws you in? Because you didn't, you know, you didn't do what I did, which is the old switcheroo every 12 months. No, I don't want to do theater anymore. No, I don't want to do art anymore. So what is it about the game that you actually love? Who are your heroes? Well, you know, f funny enough, I did try a lot of other sports. I, I just was the best at hockey, <laughs> but there is other stuff I love to do. You know, I, I was an arts fan. I, I took drama in school. I loved martial arts. Uh, you know, I played volleyball. I, I played baseball. I loved all these things, but I always knew that hockey was the real true love and uh, a bit of a family thing. You know, my, my older brother was a good player and he played junior hockey in the community. So I'd grow up and just being dragged to, to all of his practices, all his games. I used to do the music at his junior hockey games. So I was just always at the rink and, you know, I'd often wait for my brother to finish his game. Then I would drive home with him instead of my parents. And we would talk about the game and what happened and the strategies that were used. And so it was always just something that never felt like work for me. And, mm. and I know that one advice that parents always give their kids is, you know, or just that advice out there that if something doesn't feel like work, you, you know, it's a passion project and that, that stuff. And hockey just never seemed like work. I, I could go out there and get bag skated all day. I, I could have the worst 
like the hardest practice and I would come off smiling every time. And mm. so when I compared that experience to the other sports and the other activities I was doing. There was just nothing else in my life that gave me that same, that same thrill that, and, and, and just coming home and just loving it. And so it was a very genuine love on my end. The passion is, is not rooted in anyone else other than I love it. And so my brother helped me fall in love with it. You know, my parents drove me around and helped me so much. I think the big thing too, that really helped me with hockey was when I was playing able-bodied hockey, just in my community, I always felt included and I had coaches and teammates and people that never made me feel different because I had a disability. And so I was never scared to go to the rink. The rink was a safe place for me. And so that was always a place that before school, after school, I wanted to be because I had people there that me, that looked after me, that provided me with, with coaching and life skills. So I'm just a huge advocate for it now. Mm. I, you know, as much as I can hear your passion for it and this idea that if you love what you do, you don't do a day's work, yet you've, uh, exactly. you've, you've, you know, you've won a gold medal, you've, you've won, you know, you've been a, a captain for Canada's Paralympic ice hockey team. I, I think it's fair to say that passion notwithstanding, there's a lot of training that goes into it. And I think most of us don't maybe see the end results, but we don't know how much hard work goes into performing at that level internationally. What kind of training did you undergo? Well, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, just about the growth of the game and, and, and para-sport. And, you know, what was, I always loved the physical. I always loved going to the gym and, and I liked going to practices. And, you know, we were on the ice. Once you're on Team Canada, it's quite extensive. You know, three, four, five practices a week at camps. It's more than that. Usually it's twice a day. Plus the off-ice training, the nutrition, all, all that stuff. You just, it's something that to, once you hit the highest level, it's kind of 24 seven, you have to be mindful of it. You know, everything that goes into your body is calculated, everything you think about. Uh, and the one thing that changed so much recently over the past probably four to eight years was just the time spent on our mental capacity and our, our sports performance. Mm. You know, we ended up working with incredible sports psychologists and 20 year old me just loved going to the gym and loved playing hockey. And then 35 year old me was journaling every night and reading sports psychology books and putting my thoughts and my feelings down on paper. And, and, and so it's really just, it's 24 seven and it's all encompassing. It's not just the physical anymore. It's the mental, it's the diet, it's, it, it's everything. And so from kind of from the time before you go to bed the night before to the time the game's over, it, it's all you're thinking about. So it's hard to balance that with, with, with your, kind of normal life, so to speak, because as para-athletes, we don't get to do this full-time. We have to work other jobs. We have to go to school. We have to do all these things. And so I think we work just as hard or harder than many pro-athletes and Olympians, uh, but without the same resources. And so that's where it gets very difficult, but you know, we managed to do it. And it's why some of the Paralympians are some of the best people I've met in my life because they inspire me to work so hard. How do you make that balancing act happen, Greg? As you said, fewer resources for Paralympians, but a lot of pressure. So how do you keep all the balls in the air? <laughs> you know, it's hard. And there's times that you don't always feel like you're being successful. And that's why I think it's just so important to have a good team around you. Mm -hmm. And when I say a team around you, I don't just mean teammates. You know, it could be your siblings, your wife, your husband, your parents, your friends. Uh, and, and I just feel so lucky that I have so many people around me that I can call if I feel like I'm not doing it. If I feel like I don't have all the balls in the air and I'm juggling them, you, you know, I, I've always just been a phone call away from somebody that can say, hey, like you're doing well, everything's good. Um, and I always encourage people to, to have people to reach out to, to speak to. Uh, and that's one thing that just really helped me through the course of 
many, many years because it's not all easy and you don't always feel like you're rocking every day. And that's where you need people around you to, to not let you feel that way. Um, one of the things I often like to ask athletes about is undoubtedly you are over the moon when you win a medal or the team does really well and you swept the competition. But as a person with a disability, how do you handle the setbacks, the defeats, the failures? What does that teach you about yourself and maybe about I, I, maybe overcoming a disability or overcoming a setback? Yeah, you, you know what? Honestly, I, I never felt wins and losses were tied mm. to disability for me. I, mm. I, I found them very tied to passion. I found them very tied to maybe my emotional happiness and maybe sometimes it's hard to come home and bounce back right away when you, when you just had a devastating loss, you, you know, you don't just come home on Sunday and wake up on Monday feeling great. There's a process there. There's also a bit of a, a come down after the Olympic games and Paralympic games where you ride such this, this emotional high, and then you come home and you're mowing your lawn the next day and everything just seems kind of slow and boring after playing hockey in front of 15,000 people. And so I always found that was more of a, of a difficult thing to go through. It's just that come down of, because we don't get to do it all the time, you know, we kind of have our world championship and we have our Paralympics and they're every four years or once a year, but it's not like I have this hockey schedule, like the NHL, where three times a week, I get to go out there and have this, you know, amazing emotional stimulus experience. And so I always had a harder time just coming down after competition than, than I did maybe balancing the wins and the losses. Mm -hmm. And now that, you know, you're retired, um, tell me a little bit as you reflect on the Beijing games, those were your last, what sort of hopes and expectations do you have going in and how do you feel about the games now that they're all done? Well, you know, it, it was an absolute grind and uh, I would love to chat with other athletes who, who were at the uh, kind of the two COVID games, the summer and the winter ones, but it, it was a different experience and it was, it was a big commitment from everybody who went and participated in those games from staff uh, to, to the athletes, to the organizing committee, because you basically had to lock yourself down and live back like we were in day one of COVID but when nobody else was. And so everybody else around us was going to restaurants and, and living their life and, and, and meeting people. And I was living in a 500 square foot hotel room in Calgary training for the games and wasn't allowed to leave and wasn't allowed to go out or do anything because once we got to a certain point to those games, you were risking not being able to go. And so we had to live so sheltered and so secluded that by the time that those games ended, everybody just couldn't wait to get home. And so I, I had a great experience. I think, uh, of course, being a flag bearer was absolutely incredible. And one of the greatest honors in my life, to be honest with you, I, I love my teammates and my staff. And it was so fun to go out there and kind of live my fifth games through the eyes of some of the rookies and some of the guys who it was their first games. And I was loving just kind of coming out in the opening ceremonies and watching the 20 year olds and the, and the younger guys and just how excited they were. And so that kind of fired me up and made me feel like a kid again. Um, but it was a grind. It, it, it was tough. So I, I kind of just spent every day living in the moment there and trying to enjoy as much as I could and trying to FaceTime back home with, with the time change and say hi to my wife and my parents. Um, but yeah, it, it was kind of an emotional whirlwind. Uh, I was really, really enjoying it at points. And, and there was points where it, it was really tough. And it was one of the hardest um, experiences through all the COVID, to be honest with you. 
Mm, and what a way to end your career. Hey, I know you're retired, but you're not really gone uh, out of sight, out of mind, as it were. What are you planning to do now that that chapter of your life in terms of playing for Canada is behind you? What's next for you? Yeah, I hope they don't forget about me because I still love them. <laughs> Um, but no, you, you know what, like, I, I love doing this stuff. I love doing production. I love doing TV. So I'm going to keep rocking and keep telling stories on my side about sports and, and about athletes making differences in their communities. I'm going to keep doing that. I love doing that. And then I'd love to love to stay in hockey as well. I, I would love to be back and help the team out in, in any capacity. I'd also love to make a switch over and start working in some able-bodied hockey. Uh, mm. I think sometimes athletes with disabilities who have accomplished you know, as, as much as they can accomplish, still don't get looked at for some, for some tremendous opportunities. And I'd love to be somebody that could break down some of those barriers. You know, I, I don't see any reason why uh, a Paralympic hockey player couldn't work in the NHL. And I don't see any reason, you know, why a wheelchair basketball player couldn't work in the NBA. And, and that's just my mindset. I don't see any reason for, for that. You know, I think if you're ambitious, if you're hardworking, if, you're if you have the intelligence for it and, and the resume for it, you should get a look like everybody else. So I'm very passionate about that as well. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of plans ahead of you. And Greg, congratulations again on your induction to the Disability Hall of Fame. Couldn't have happened to a nicer and more deserving person. Thanks so much for speaking to me today. No, thank you so much. And also just you know, I'm so excited to see Josh and, and Laura McDonald. They're amazing people and they've done so much in that community and the whole organizing committee for the uh, Canadian Foundation for People with Disabilities. They do such great work and uh, it's an absolute honor for me to just be mentioned in the same category with these people. Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Thank you. Greg Westlake is one of three inductees into the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. Well, we've got a couple of minutes here on the program. Let me bring in my technical producer, Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Nisreen, I, can, I bet you're really excited about the conversation we just heard with Greg Westlake. What, are your, what, what sort of jumped out at you from that whole conversation? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I can hear the love for his career. I, I can hear it in his voice. And I, I am so happy to find someone like that, um, as passionate as him. And so what stood out for me was his line when he said, my wins and losses has nothing to do with my disability. Mm -hmm. It's about, it's more about my passion. And that's exactly what a person needs to hear in their career. I mean, it's not about your disability, um, your capability. It's more about the passion than anything else. And that's what's important. And a lot of people think, oh, she can't because she lost because of, you know, her disability. And uh, I'm sure a lot of ignorant people think that way. And it's, it's not like that. When I was, uh, when I was a kid, I was always into the re recreational activities, but I, you know, stopped, I couldn't get into it because of my disability. Um, so every time I would try for a sport, they would put me on the side and tell me that I can stay out of the game because of my disability. Um, instead of making it more inclusive, instead of, you know, having adaptive equipment for my disability and making me included in the activities. So I never had those opportunities in my life. And um, his story is just inspiring and makes me want to get back into it. <laughs> <laughs> hit the gym if nothing else right no right? I really like that I really like that bit about uh failures and successes not being defined by disability because I have a real 
fear of failure. If you know me IRL in real life, you know, I don't like not being good at things. And I feel like the reason I don't like being good at things is because I mean, A, who does like to be bad at things, but B, I think more so it comes down to, oh, if I'm not good at whatever this thing is, people are going to think that I'm not capable as a person with a disability. Exactly. I don't just think it needs to change for able-bodied people who might make assumptions about the capabilities of people with disabilities. But I think, at least for myself, there's a degree of internalized ableism that happens there too. And I kind of need to do the work of bringing myself to a place where Greg is at, where, you know, he's so passionate about the game. He's made it his life's work. And when there've been highs, he's been happy and he's celebrated with the team. But when there've been lows, he's just been able to take it in stride um, and and bounce back from that without making it Mm -hmm. a, a reflection of, his disability or anybody's disability is actually a really powerful takeaway from that. But I also loved when he said that he would like to work in able-bodied hockey. Nasreen, that's a really big thing to say because yeah. the silos are out there, right? You're off in your space doing Paralympics. You're off in your space doing the Olympics. And I'm not going to go so far as to say that they shouldn't have the Paralympics and they should all be sort of muddled together. Um, I think that's a little bit that's a little too radical too fast but just as women have started to make inroads into management and training into men's hockey i think there's a lot that athletes with and without disabilities can learn from paralympics uh, from from para athletes because these are people who have not had a lot of resources at one point did not have a lot of recognition and have really had to juggle a lot of things to make their dream come true. Nasreen, it was really great talking to you about Greg. Thanks a lot for sharing some of your thoughts and insights about our conversation today. Of course. Thank you. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer here on The Pulse, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. If you have any questions, concerns, compliments, or complaints, you can always write to us at feedback at ami.ca, or you can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. That's all the time we have for today. I've been your host, Juhita Gupta, and on behalf of Nasreen and myself, thanks a lot for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.